Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. Subscribe to SubChina's daily, newly designed China Access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our website at subchina.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to China's ambitious plans to shift its economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Many of us who've learned Chinese just in recent decades now take for granted how easily we can communicate in written Chinese today. Actually, knowing how to write the couple of thousand characters needed for basic literacy isn't even all that necessary if you have even the most rudimentary digital device. And if we don't possess literacy at all in Chinese, we can just cut and paste big chunks of text and machine translate them into or out of Chinese with relative ease and do it for free or at a very, very low cost. If we only speak Chinese, we can dictate into our phones and have our words captured with impressive accuracy. These days, most people I know who didn't learn Chinese as children and have learned to write by hand do so mostly out of an aesthetic appreciation for Chinese characters, which are pretty inarguably beautiful things. But go back not very long ago, and the written language was a matter of quite fractious debate with a great many people, giants of of Chinese intellectual and literary life, arguing very forcefully that the Chinese writing system itself needed to be scrapped entirely and that it was holding back China's efforts to modernize, while others dedicated themselves to creating ex nihilo, the technologies required to allow things that we take so much for granted now, including typing, telegraphy, and, and computing. My guest today has written a wonderful book that I have recommended before on this program. It's called Kingdom of Characters, The Language Revolution That Made China Modern. And I am thrilled uh, that the author, Jing Zhu, is able to join me finally on Seneca. Jing Su is John M. Schiff Professor of East Asian Languages and Literatures and Comparative Literature at Yale University. And though I've only recently gotten to know her, I am already a huge fan And we've had some really fun conversations about how the languages and writing systems we use shape the way we actually think. And I'm eager for her to share her thoughts about that and other things today. Jing Su, welcome to Seneca. Thank you, Kaiser, for having me. So I I should mention that Jing and I happened to appear together recently (laughs) on the venerable podcast Radio Open Source, which is hosted by the great Chris Leiden. Uh, The show airs on WBUR in Boston and is also available wherever you get your podcasts. There's a link in the show notes, of course, and in the transcript, so check it out. We were asked to talk about people-to-people relations between China and the U.S., and Jing is really wonderful there, although you can skip my parts. One quick <laughs> caveat before we dive into this topic, and that is that you know linguists and other specialists are probably going to you know, be able to nitpick over how certain words are deployed in the conversation to follow. Um, 
just so you all know, yes, I do know that linguistics only deals with the spoken language and not the written. And yes, I know that ideograph or indiogram is out and we should use logogram uh, to talk about Chinese characters, uh, that a word is not a character, uh, that people uh, use the word dialect wrong all the, all the time. They should be calling them maybe you know, topolects. Uh, they're actually separate Sinitic languages. Uh, anyway, all that stuff. I will try to be careful, but apologies in advance for any slip-ups, and please, no need to write me with the corrections. <laughs> <laughs> so with all of that out of the way, Jing, I think it's fitting that that uh, Radio Open Source, those guys should have asked you to come on because you are one of those remarkable cultural translators who is so good at making China intelligible to the non-specialist. And you have done that really beautifully in Kingdom of Characters. I think I may have said this already when I recommended the book on an earlier show, but it's one of those books I love the most. It's one of those books that shows the life of the forest by focusing on a single tree. And you really uh, hit on a great tree to focus on uh, with the written language. This, I think it really tells the story of modern China through a perfect vehicle with pretty surprising connections to all the major turning points in um, the last century and a half, modern Chinese history. Uh, but is it's also, it's like China, very deeply rooted in the past. So I wanted to start by asking you today uh, about another time you were tapped for your ex expertise as a cultural translator when NBC, the American television network, uh, asked you to travel to Beijing for the Winter Olympics earlier this year as their cultural commentator. Can you tell me how that came about first? Yeah. So, you know, this in some part, I think is really because of COVID. Uh, so in the early days of COVID, everything went online and someone has seen me on a panel, which was actually about U.S.-China relations that was sponsored by the Jackson uh, School of Global Affairs at Yale. And that's apparently how NBC heard about me because this person was actually a consultant that they used when they were trying to figure out who to bring out for the Olympics. Oh, right. So, yeah, so they hit you up and... Uh... I'm, I'm, what I guess I'm most interested in is what this experience revealed to you about uh, what the producers of the program were, were most curious about when it came to China, most perplexed by, or, or maybe even most ignorant of uh, about, you know, contemporary China. So what, what sorts of stuff were you asked to comment on? Well, you know, it's interesting because they did this now twice, which is where they have a cultural commentator and they have a another journalist who comment on the politics. And the last time they did this was actually a Sochi ah. in Russia. So what the signal to me was that they took this very seriously. Now, you recall at that time, things were, as they still are, pretty tense between China and the U.S. We were embroiled in issues over Xinjiang. Peng uh, Shuai was also a huge topic around January. There was Hong Kong. There was Taiwan. There was Tibet. So there's a lot of very difficult issues that the network had to deal with. Sure. And so, interestingly, they didn't ask me. They gave me topics that they want to hear my, hear my thoughts on. But they actually just spent a lot of time listening and asking questions, which I was actually quite impressed by. I mean, it was very clear that, you know, to represent China to, let's say, your your average grandmother washing dishes in Idaho when the Olympics is on, it was very different from what, let's say, I'm used to in academia, where you have a captive audience of 19 to 21-year-olds who are just there to listen and learn. Yeah. So how was the whole closed-loop experience for you? I mean, was your sense... Um, that they handled it well, that they handled it awfully. Um, you know, the whole thing looked bizarre uh, from the outside. I'm curious what it was like inside the closed loop. It was pretty bizarre from the inside too. It was very Orwellian, <laughs> but I think also they did the closed loop system so well. So, you know, when we arrive at the airport, you know, you would think that we were the only flat that day and we were ushered into this area where we were tested everything had this this thin film of white dust and that's from the disinfectant and of course hazmat suits with blue tape um with their chinese names written on them because so they can recognize each other and they sort of just processed us and the whole time it was very impressive when we went to the uh to visit the ski venues actually when we went to train station the entire terminal was blocked off for us same with the airport so, you know, we were completely separated from the um, local population. Now, you might remember before the Olympics, there were there was these reports um, about how, oh, you know, for, if you're a foreigner in a car and you get into an accident, no one can come help you because they need a special team to come extract you. Right. What they did not tell you was that we actually ended up with our own lane when we were on the freeway. 
So, you know, the, the whole time we were truly in a bubble, we were handled either like VIPs or foreign contaminants. I, I think at, <laughs> at that point in time, it was basically one of the same. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of like it was back in the 80s too, right? Yeah, which you would know a lot about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, Eileen Gu, of course, was a huge topic of, of contention there. I, I'm sure you were asked about, about her and her sort of uh, unclear uh, nationality status and things like that. Uh, where did you come down when you were asked about that? Yeah, I actually had to do a segment on her with Mike Chirico. And um, at that time, you might remember this is also coincided the woman in chains, Oshito. And so right. what I pointed out was basically the the reaction of the Chinese netizens. Um, so on the one hand, Eileen Gu was basically embraced as this shining icon, um, you know, beautiful Eurasian, incredibly talented um, athlete. But I also pointed out that Eileen Gu is only possible within an American system, right? She got to choose her sports. She got to play with it. It's very different from how athletes were chosen at a very young age in China. The Chinese netizens also realized with this contradiction between you know, the Shizhou woman and Eileen Gu is that it was a reality that they cannot quite embrace or hope to see in the Chinese system. So that was kind of in broad strokes what I said. And I would just also emphasize at the end of the day also, Eileen Gu is... Is she's going to be a college freshman, you know? So in some ways, I look at her and how much pressure Olympic athletes, uh, especially those who of Asian or Asian descent, are just put into this very difficult spotlight throughout this whole Olympics. Yeah, no, that's that's a really excellent excellent set of responses to that. I wish I could have seen that segment. It sounds like you really nailed it. So let's talk about the book, and perhaps we can begin with, you know, your original inspiration uh, for writing a book about the written Chinese language. Uh, how did you get started on this? You know, my approach was really, you know, from being in a scholarly world for, you know, 20, 30 years since I was a graduate student, you hear about this question, which I'm sure you have too. Why didn't scientific revolution happen in China? The Needham question. Exactly. The Joseph Needham question, the, the, the one that we all carry for decades. And, you know, scholars have revolved around basically trying to argue its way out of this position of inferiority and to justify why China had science and so on and so forth. And what I want to do was, you know, how do we tell the story without being on the defense? How can we simply tell a history without, you know, getting into these academic um, hair-splitting quibbles sometimes that actually, I think, constrain us and limit us from engaging with this history of these remarkable casts of kind of known and unknown characters, what I call second and third stringers of history. Oh, yeah. That's, uh, that's an interesting origin for it. Uh, you were actually born in, in Taiwan. You were a Weishengren, like my family was. And Mandarin Chinese was your first language, obviously. But um, I know this is true of at least many people who then go on to learn a second language, but I found that we often don't recognize the peculiarities and, and really the remarkable properties of our first language until we're well along our way to learning our second one. It's only when we step outside of that native language that we can sort of see how special or how weird it is. Yeah. Was was this at all the case for you when you started writing about the language you grew up speaking and reading and writing? Um, I think it's most certainly true. And uh, well, also, I have to say, you know, academically, I've been working on this. I've been working on this topic for over a decade. And so, but the way of explaining it to your average or smart reader was very different because I really had to learn how to look at Chinese as though I've never seen it before. All right. Look at this thing and try to figure out what would be my first questions, right? It'd definitely be about the way it looks, then the way it sounds. Um, the way it's it's used. Um, so those are the three general premises that I kind of proceeded on to explain that language and try to bring it to life. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of our, our listeners who they probably already have, at the very least, a, a glancing familiarity with the Chinese writing system, uh, maybe not all of them. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's great you, you bring this up because when you're introducing the fundamental features of such a different writing system to your students or to this imaginary readership of yours. So you try to impress upon them that it's, it's, it's visual. I mean, I've tried to do the same thing. It's, it's hard. Uh, I mean, I, I think I, I probably, you know, do it wrong. Uh, but I think a lot of people think that it's just pictographs uh, or, or <laughs> rebuses, you know, that it's like Egyptian hieroglyphics or something, or, or, or maybe that there's just no rhyme or reason to it whatsoever. Uh, but you can't exactly divorce 
Chinese characters from their pictographic origins. And you also don't want to give people the idea that there is a ton of rhyme and reason um, that you can, you know, deduce the meaning or the pronunciation just by looking at them. So you're in this kind of weird gray area. It's hard. It's, I find it pretty hard to explain, but I, I think uh, you, you you put your finger on it that that you have to start with the sort of the visual properties of it, right? And I think yeah, apart from the visual property, you know, that it looks strange. I mean, I think there's one very fundamental difference. If you look at alphabet, it's really a, a line of letters, right? It's sort of, mm-hmm. of care, it's, you spell things out in a linear fashion, one letter after the next, and it comes in a certain order that's inviolable. B comes right. after A, S before T. So, you know, for Chinese characters, first of all, that that linear logic does not exist. And characters kind of appear not like a row of something in linear fashion, but kind of a cluster of parts that kind of pile together, kind of like Lego blocks. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, just to get to wrap one's head around that is already a very good start. Yeah, yeah. Plans. One thing I loved about your book is that you feature these really uh well-chosen characters, these, these, um, not, not Chinese characters, but Chinese, like, not, not, but, you know, these <laughs> personages. Um, and then they're, they're really fantastically representative of the different challenges that, uh, China faced. Actually, you had me at the epigraph of the, of the book itself. I mean, you, you actually start with these really, the three of them actually that, that set up the whole, really, the arc of the book. Um, the first is from Li, Li Shizong, the uh, anarchist and, and Republican revolutionary, who said in 1907, um, and in, in the kind of social Darwinian language of the day, evolutionary theory says that the inferior shall be gotten rid of. We must then start with a Chinese script. You know, very social Darwin. And the second one was maybe, uh, will, will probably prove very surprising to a lot of people. It was from none other than Lu Xun who is widely regarded as the greatest, you know, Chinese writer of the 20th century. Uh, And he echoes this idea, actually, three decades later. He says, if the Chinese script does not go, China will certainly perish. And then then finally, there's this quote from Chen Mingyuan from 1980, who says that computers are finally able to process Chinese. Long live the square character. So what did Li Shizong and Lu Xun and really countless others, what did they believe was so inferior, so existentially threatening about the Chinese writing system? Well, I do have to say, first of all, that, you know, when you look at these, these uh, what these intellectuals were saying late 19th century, early 20th century, you have to take it with a grain of salt because, you know, for them, the, this rhetoric of failure, of extinction, of imminent perish, you know, China is going to be over. I mean, that's really is kind of a heuristic device that they were using to galvanize their countrymen and their fellow citizens. But on a practical level, which is why kind of this what really struck me about this project is that there was something compositional and physically challenging about the Chinese language. It takes more time to learn. There's no other civilization that prized more um, the fact of spending probably half your life, if not your entire lifetime, learning new characters and reading the classics and basically digging through the past. There's extraordinary distinction granted to that kind of knowledge that's built slowly over time. So not something that my, you know, our, our next, your, your, your children's generation or my students coming up really appreciate, which is, you know, the slow accretion of, of knowledge and kind of like the, the dripping on stone technique. And that was always prized, as you know, with different kinds of calligraphy and being well-versed in the classics in China, being able to compose verse on tap. But, you know, around the late 19th century, when you have West on the rise with their guns and boats and their technological proficiency and mathematics, physics, and, and so on and so forth. Then this writing system became very cumbersome, right? Because mm. you spend all this time learning these characters in school. What about math? And uh, what about physics? You know, what about these, you know, anatomy? So at that time, they made the Chinese feel maybe that's the problem China, or why it was weak in comparison to the West, because the language was so burdensome and so difficult to learn. It was not efficient. It was not amenable to science and, and modernity. And those, unfortunately, were also echoed and reinforced by the observations of the early Europeans who did come to China and was also faced with a strange writing system, except, you know, this also went through different phases. There's really a love-hate relationship where Chinese was revered 
as the mother tongue of God in the 17th century by these, you know, right. pursuance of universal language. And the 18th century was fetishized and raised with a degree of idealization. But then 19th century, when evolutionary theory came along, all of a sudden Chinese became backward and primitive, if not barbaric. So just to be upfront about this, I'm one of those people who is very sentimentally attached to the Chinese <laughs> character. And, and I'm immensely grateful uh, to the book's protagonists who did work so hard to find ways to print them and to type them and to send them by telegraph and to word process them. Um, what is it that so many Chinese people, the students of Chinese, still love so much about them? I mean, because you still do find that. I think, you know, the language, the written form itself is really beautiful. There's an art to it. There's an aesthetic. There's a there's a huge philosophical background, right, and discourse that comes with the Chinese language. I mean, the origin of the characters, right, that the ghost wailed and heavens rained millet, you know, on the night that characters were born, that a four-eyed sage actually was inspired by the formation of clouds and the patterns of the universe to construct a symbol system for the human language that could also resonate and harmonize with, right? So it's very different. It was never abstract to begin with, the way we think about, you know, the Greek alphabet and what it adapted from the Phoenician alphabet, right? Because the characters are very much meant to be part of the natural world, not something that stands against it or let alone have the will to power to control nature. Oh, yeah, that's beautifully put. Yeah, I remember um, my first classical Chinese class, you know, learning about uh, the, the whole mythology. Uh, it actually explains how, you know, I can't remember who it was, who saw the, the footprints of different birds in sand and realized you could identify the bird by the footprint and that they had distinct patterns and the characters were born, which is a little more scientific than, you know, millet raining down from the heavens, but. Uh. <laughs> it is. And I, I, I've never looked at the bird same ever since. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so I, I, it's kind of funny. I mean, I joked with you about this when we were talking on the phone the other day about how the book is all Wang's and Joe's. I mean, you've got like Wang Zhao and Zhou Houkun and, you know, the invention of the Chinese typewriter, Wang Jinchun, and then the, the chapter on telegraphy. Uh, and of course, Zhou Yuguang on, on, on Pinyin, Wang Xuan. So they're all Wangs and Joes. It's amazing. Uh, can you introduce us to some of these characters again? You know the the Renwu, not the ones, and talk about their contributions. Who are who are some of the ones that you really felt connected to and that you really like, kind of grooved with? Well, they're definitely very surprising characters to me that came up in my research, right? So one is certainly the the fake Buddhist monk that starts the book off in yeah, chapter yeah. one, who is basically like a Mandarin, a pretty conservative one. So, you know, this is not someone that I read about in graduate school. That is to say, it's not the Liang Qichao, it's not the Kang Youwei with the radical, cool ideas, you know, to topple the, you know, the, the, the last dynasty and to really bring in something new, like this pumped up, very eloquent rhetoric. This is basically kind of like a conservative, kind of a, a gradualist. You know, he was a mild progressive. And his, his father, his brother were all very loyal to the last empire. But then he was this really stubborn, almost very unlikable person. In fact, I found it hard to love Wang Zhao when I wrote about him. But yeah, I found yeah. him immensely interesting and grew a huge amount of respect. And, you know, he himself came back from exile in Japan, where he could have very well lived out his days in peace. But then he had this idea that his Mandarin phonetic alphabet was going to save the day, that was going to save the Chinese language, you know, from the precipice of ruin, and that he alone was taken on this task. Now, of course, there were other language reformers, but Wang Zhao is the one who insisted and, made, and perhaps, and in fact, even manipulated Beijing Mandarin to be the basis of what later became Putonghua. There's a lot of steps along the way, a lot of manipulation and gerrymandering, but essentially he's the one that did it. And I love how, you know, the, I follow him all the way through his entire life. And he wrote these volumes of poetry, um, not often very good, but incredibly <laughs> heartfelt and poignant. And I just remember his last, um, one of his last poems, he writes, he asks, you know, could I have done better? Like, could I have been a better man, more likable? Perhaps. But then he said, but so that, so that's, you know, that's how it is. And I'm willing to <laughs> pay the price for it. So I just thought that kind of integrity, I mean, to be, to have one purpose in your life and to see that through. I mean, I, I, I don't know many people I know now who can commit themselves 
you know, so unwaveringly to that one cause. There's also the, you know, the, the bureaucrat, Wang Jingchun, the tele- te- telegraphy chapter, which I really had to dig hard because the guy was not very verbal, didn't leave, mm-hmm. leave beyond mm-hmm. very much. So, you know, really trying to bring out this personality, how to sort of, you know, go through many, many different other people's perspectives and put them together. And as much as each of those characters gave me a challenge, there was one that I truly loved almost as much as he loved the Chinese script revolution. <laughs> which was my librarian, Bismarck Duel. <laughs> he called himself Bismarck because he wanted to rule the field of library science with an iron fist. And he's the one that comes up in the middle of chapter four. He's almost like exactly in the middle of the book. And I actually originally wanted to start the chapter with him. But then after several back and forth with my editor, we decided to you know, start off the chapter with Lin Vitali instead, whom I wrote about before, was also, of course, great and a genius and a maverick. But you know, Bismarck Duel was the... No nonsense, you know, hard nosed, you know, always by the book kind of guy who, you know, really brought down in some ways this very kind of dramatic, heated race to find that perfect way to index and to analyze Chinese characters. And, you know, he wrote these love odes to the library. He really did, like written in the voice of, you know, a lover to the beloved. And he'll talk about past relationship and fights and the disagreements and ultimately an enduring partnership. I really, really enjoy writing about him. And I just, you know, for all the human characters in this book, if they did not exist in history, I would not even know how to make them up. I see his Bismarck do and I raise him a Kaiser Guo. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And I like to see what the outcome is. <laughs> well, but I just have to point out your interesting Chinese language, your interesting Chinese language, though, this episode you're going to do. I wanted to say that, you know, you and I are basically all part of this Chinese script revolution that's still happening, right? It draws interest and it draws those like us to really kind of ask and to question and to wonder about its legacy. But not all of us are fully equipped to, to explore it the way you have. I mean, you are somebody who's Areas of academic focus actually nicely straddle, you know, the the two cultures that C.P. Snow talked about, the the humanities and social sciences, I suppose, on the one hand, but on the other hand, you know, science and technology, because you actually do quite a bit of work on science and technology, bring these two things together in the book, you know, the humanities and uh, science, and are able to write about some quite highly technical issues uh, from, you know, the mechanics of typewriters to the ins and outs of Unicode, uh, what did you find most challenging uh, in terms of the technologies that you had to get your head around? Well, so f- first of all, thank you very much for saying that. I mean, to be to be mentioned the same sentence as C.P. Snow, is, it's, it's very humbling. Um, but uh, yes, almost as humbling as what this book actually put me through <laughs> in trying to write it. I mean, <laughs> certainly, you know, I'm a humanist because I, I, I ran away from math and science and anything having to do with computers. But of course, you know, everything comes back to bite you in life. So this book made me go through, uh, I spent countless hours trying to figure out how the monotype casting machine worked in the 19-teens. Oh I read typewriting manuals from 1899. I um, Unicode and learning about coding. I mean, I remember I was in um, I was in I was in Switzerland with with my family at the time, and they were all out, and I was sitting alone at home watching, sort of reading through this Unicode book written by Ken Lund, who was actually the authoritative figure on this, and just you know that entire book, which is probably four or five hundred pages. Almost every page was dog-eared because I just had to like, okay, I got to look this up later. <laughs> but certainly, but a- apart from that, I think it also challenged me as a historian or 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 historian tried to be, right? As a cultural historian, I, you know, I remember working the Vatican Library, looking through dictionaries from 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries, the first bilingual dictionaries like Latin Chinese or Portuguese Chinese or French and Chinese, and, you know, and I remember the reading room and seeing this monk, you know, with the with a robe and everything who came in and he was slipping through this this illuminated manuscript that was so old that it actually didn't close anymore. But he went through those pages like the way I would read like Cosmopolitan or something or, or an economist. I mean, so it's just actually really remarkable to, you know, in this process of researching, researching for this book, um, you know, to be steeped in the past three, four centuries, even though, you know, which were all necessary foreground knowledge for me before actually writing about the 20th. 
So it was this very, it was an adventure in itself. And as I said, at the end of it, I realized, wow, when I was sitting in Hanoi, that chapter seven, you know, with those Unicode people, I realized who would come to Hanoi in the middle of a school year instead of teaching my classes? And I realized, wow, I just became part of this revolution that I'm writing about, uh, writing about with all these adventures and obsessive, compulsive mavericks and, you know, just obsessive personalities. So I realized, ah, that's me. <laughs> One of the things that struck me as I was reading the book is that the writing system stands as a kind of metaphor for, for China and its challenges. The, on the one hand, the fierce attachment to tradition, uh, the sense of urgency around modernizing, uh, the recognition for the need for quite you know revolutionary change, also the obsession with technological advancement, uh, the fraught nature of you know participation in a wider world. So as I read the book, I kept recognizing that there was a kind of qi and yung kind of thinking at play straight out of the self-strengthening movement that, that started in the 1860s. Yeah. I, I thought that this was in evidence in the way that some of your protagonists thought about Chinese characters, that they were the embodiment of Chineseness itself, the essence, the, you know, the tea that had to be preserved, and that this could only be done with the right application of technology, of Western Yong. Uh, I actually see many areas of Chinese life where this thinking persists right down to this day. Uh, do you think that there's something to that when it came to the, the modernization of, of writing? You know, in short, absolutely. Because if you think about it, it was really about, you know, the, the zhong ti and xiyong is really about um, figuring out how to bend the stick back, like trying to adapt mm -hmm. yourself to a, quest, to, a, to a system that you did not invent, nor was it designed for you, but then having to do it. And, you know, this is the same for other parts of the world with an alphabetization, Right, Lenin called it the greatest revolution in the East. And there's a whole Eurasian movement towards alphabetization right. with Turkey and Central Asiatic republics and so on and so forth. Um, or back then, they were, they were not republics just yet. And so, you know, this really is a kind of unprecedented onslaught of you know, adapting to a foreign technology and writing is that first technology that humans invented. Yeah. You know, that was just an extraordinary, extraordinary change. And for the Chinese language in particular, to bridge that gap, it was really like doing the impossible. Yeah. I mean, and I think that part of this, the, the whole sort of resistance to even things like Han Yu Pin or, or, or to Zhen Ti Zi, to, you know, simplified characters, that still reflects that same, these same tensions, that they, they see them as kind of a, a betrayal or a compromise uh, that might be avoided with the right technology. It's, it's, Really interesting. What's interesting is um, when I think you're right that most people, there's some people who certainly thought that way. But if you look at the internal documents of the Pinyin Committee and how Jian Tzu's simplified characters were actually talked about, you know, both of us were meant to be bridge measures to ensure the survival right. of the Chinese script. So, you know, a lot of people think that was supposed to be replacement of. In fact, you know, we have many scholars in the West, like John DeFrancis and these advocates um, um, who, who, who actually wanted things that Pinyin should take over. I don't think, you know, they really saw that, you know, for the Chinese, they were willing to go take a detour. But the idea was always to come back to themselves. And frankly, that's kind of a larger statement about where we see China now, right? That people are surprised, you know, that you and I were asked to talk about, like, what happened to Kissinger? What happened to ping pong diplomacy? Well, what happened was it was kind of a convenient love affair. But I think both US and China were very clear eyed about who they were getting into bed with. And it was not going to be a long alliance. Fascinating. Yeah. No, that I, that's why this is that thing about your book that I love so much is that it stands in for so many other other questions. So what do you think are the next technological frontiers for Chinese characters? Or are we now at the point where it's basically complete? The language is now as frictionless, every bit as frictionless as, say, English when it comes to um, the actual use of technology in the modern world. Well, there's actually kind of two ways to answer that. One as for technological uh, breakthrough. I mean, it's still very much ongoing. You know, just a couple of years ago, Baidu's AI machine translation surpassed Google's. And there are certain ways in which precisely because the Chinese language, the Chinese had to like, you know, overhaul and, and sort of drag their language into a kind of technological milieu that's not their own. They actually learned more about it. 
right? They both learned the strengths of an alphabet technology and they learned the strengths of Chinese and how to make that alphabetic technology augment Chinese language rather than kind of replace or having to sort of, you know, subsume it under. So that's one general answer to that. The second answer is, you know, I believe last month, the Chinese actually, there was a there was new regulation out that called for stamping out these weird fonts that are proliferating in the internet. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's a kind of, I think there is a sense as with a general backlash against kind of facile westernization as kind of a stand-in for modernity. There's a sense that, you know, there's a problem that the young people can't really write in characters or recognize them, right? That one needs to sort of bring in the technological progress we've made with writing and to really put the emphasis back on it as a kind of cultural heritage and responsibility. So that seems to me what the regulation, you know, the regulatory landscape, how the government thinks about, it, right? It is something obviously with any, I think with any um, nation is always very important at some point to control the language, like the power standardization. So I think that is very much being used and utilized. So yet another detour or a bridge technology uh, and we'll ultimately come back to being able to write. Yeah, it, it pains me actually to, to see even um, people close to me who uh, can write but do not make any effort to write beautifully. It's weird. Uh, I, I, I tell them, look, this is it's supposed to be thinner here and thicker here. You put more pressure here and less. Anyway, uh, it's yeah, that, that, that's the part you. that's... I hear you. Time. Well, except you know, you're talking to someone who you know, as a as a as a kid in China, in Taiwan, I have to say, I was not a very good student, and I used to during calligraphy class, I will often use those pens to you know draw out the contour and fill it in with ink. But can't <laughs> hold that against an eight year old. I'm sure I'm better. I'm so much better now. <laughs> okay, good. That is what I plan to do in my retirement: is just sit in a bamboo grove with a pot Very of heated nice. wine and do calligraphy. Oh, I think Maybe Kaiser Kaiser Guo that could be a new, you know, your your new your studio name. <laughs> All right, um, you know, I want to shift gears now and talk about those big questions that animated. Really, I think your initial idea for the book, you know, the Needham question and stuff like that. There, and by the way, with Needham, it's it's really funny because there's this anecdote in in the book. The Man Who Loved China, which is about Needham by, by Simon Winchester. Uh, and this is pretty well known. I mean, he's talked about it himself. Uh, how, you know, he's in bed with his Chinese graduate student, Lu Weijin, and he's enjoying, a, I guess, a post-coital cigarette. And um, she tells him, she asks what the word is for, for a cigarette. And she tells him, you know, it's Xiangyan, and writes it down and, and, and breaks down the characters. And he's basically then immediately hooked on Chinese. But, you know, he doesn't really explore the whole question of how the Chinese writing system may have hindered scientific development or affected the way that Chinese people thought. But, you know, Needham was kind of your starting point. But you wrote a, a version of this, and I thought it, it, it was such a great tease. It bears quoting at length. There's a paragraph in the introduction to your book, and it actually kind of sent a little thrill through me when I read it, and it, it made me instantly want to reach out. You wrote, how an entire civilization outside of Christendom evolved to have a writing system as complex and massive as the Chinese script has been an enduring linguistic mystery for outsiders. This inquiry poorly masks a deep suspicion. How can a people who read and write in characters ever think the way we do? So that that just really grabbed me and, and, and it made me want to, like I said, reach out. I know you've not read Richard Nisbet, uh, but I do recommend it. He wrote this book called Geography of Thought. I'm sure you'd find it very, very interesting. Um, and it, it's about how much more important, for example, context is in Chinese than in English and other European languages. Uh, maybe and also like maybe not directly related to to language, but there's all sorts of fascinating stuff about how like Chinese tend to group things based on relational properties rather than on specific categories. And so the examples that he gives are like, if you ask a bunch of Chinese people, you give them three words or even pictures, they'll be like cow, chicken, grass. They And ask them to group two of them together. Chinese will tend to group cows and grass rather than cow and chicken. Westerners, because cows and chickens are both animals, they'll group them together. But because cows eat grass, the Chinese will will group those two together. And same with like monkey, banana, panda. They'll 
group monkey with banana rather than monkey with panda for, for the same reason. When it, you know, when it comes to language anyway, I, I, I think the whole impact on thinking question is, is clearly, well, it's something that interests you. It interests me. But with this caveat that we're, you know, we're speculating here, we, we maybe haven't done a lot of research. What are some of the features of Chinese that you suspect might have an impact on, on cognition or on thinking or ultimately on the Chinese psychology? Well, just I just want to, I want to start with a comment first on on what you were saying, how you were summarizing this this argument. I think all the examples you gave, right, how we associate certain words and concepts with others, um, these are actually categorizations that we create out of language. I don't necessarily think they're categorizations that are created by language itself, mm-hmm, but rather, mm-hmm. you know, when we express our thoughts to them, you know, for instance, if you look at, because the main, the, the, the one of the most important things in the book about language is how they enable us to categorize and classify our thought, right? Mm-hmm. Whether in our own head or actually externally in systems of language, like dictionaries or catalogs or how we group things together and how we see some things as having affinity and others not. Those are the points where I think the greatest civilizational difference come from. Because, you know, if we look at how Chinese organized their libraries, they didn't have mm-hmm. Dewey Decimal Systems, they didn't have, you know, Library of Congress, you know, they organized it kind of like the way you said, according to kind of precepts of morality and norms and culture. So, you know, the classics, even when you said, when you read Shou Wen Jie Zi, you know, that classic, what mm-hmm. we call the first, the first Chinese dictionary, dictionary, it's very much organized by, you know, almost Confucian precepts, right? So you have rulers and then family. So it's a very yeah. much sort of governed by that. So yes, I do think that language systems reflect that. But I'm also hesitant to push that very far because I think these are habits that are created by language, but whether that necessarily creates a mold that we think in, kind of like a spatial container, I'm actually uncertain about that. I think, uh, but for those of you who are, for those who are bilingual, like you or me, or trilingual, quadrilingual, I mean, I think it definitely is true that, as, as you said earlier, it's only when we get to step outside of our own language, right? Do we sense and see the possibility of different ways of thinking? So you're more perfectly bilingual than I am, for sure. I, I don't express it 100% or even close to it in Chinese. Um, and I think that may be the reason why I feel like Kaiser in Chinese is a very different person than Kaiser in English. But is Jing in English a very different person than Jing in, in Chinese? Oh, gosh. I could tell you um, there's one very notable difference. For some reason, you know, I can, I can cuss in English literally like a sailor, but I cannot do, (laughs) have you? Oops. Oh my gosh. I didn't even notice that. But I don't even, I I cannot come anywhere saying a bad word in Chinese. Wow. I just can't do it. I just think it's, it's it just feels really, really bad. But English is almost like, you know, these are just sounds. They kind of almost like don't mean very much to me (laughs) to say a bad word, to say, you know, you know, whatever you, whatever four letter word you like to fill in, um, it's just not as a big deal to me. Now, I remember when I was learning English in third grade, I would say perhaps the most innocuous four letter word, damn, you know, all the time. That was like one of the uh-huh. words I learned. And I'll just say that whenever, you know, something goes wrong. And the American kids in, in class were appalled and they looked at me as though I was just kind of, you know, completely undecorous. But in any case, so that, that's actually a greatest difference. I think a lot of certainly my own personal sense of like propriety was was already ingrained in the Chinese language. And so that that definitely has a first mover advantage in shaping who I am. That's hysterical. I mean, because I've seen that. I've definitely seen that in uh, people who, who learn Chinese as a second language. They swear way more than they need to uh, in Chinese. I mean, and they don't have like the, the kind of – you know, like low caliber words or, you know, where, where it would have just been enough to, to, to just, you know, mildly argue with somebody or whatever. And they go, they reach immediately for the large bore stuff, you know, for the worst (laughs) involving your mother and her private parts. And, and, and and suddenly, you know, they, they escalate unnecessarily because they don't have, and I think, I think there is that effect that people don't think they're real. 
in Chinese. There's just some sounds. You well, and I almost think, you know, I think people overcompensate. You know, it's frustrating not to be able to communicate in a different language. So you tend to go for the strong verbs, the strong words to kind of as, to feel as though you're able to express yourself more when it just pulls you, you know, into a different personality. <laughs> One thing I keep thinking about um, it, it, the differences between English and Chinese and maybe the way that, that we're, we think is this the ubiquity of the use of cheng yu, of these four character <clears throat> idioms in Chinese? Um, now, it's not like everyone uses them all the time. I mean, you know, it's only people who are at, at a particular level of erudition, but it's hard to stump most educated Chinese. Most of them have heard, uh, you know, thousands of these cheng yu. And I, I wonder whether. The the fact that you're you're using these, I mean, sure, we've got them too. We've got them too in English. I mean, a lot of them that come from Shakespeare, or from the King James Bible, or or from you know Greek mythology, or from you know Aesop and his fables and stuff like that. We sure we have them too, but they they don't appear with the kind of frequency that I encounter them in in even just sort of Chinese of a, a moderate level of literacy. So, do you think? That makes any difference? Well, you know, Chinese to me are basically just colloquialism. I don't particularly think of them as you know learned something. I, in mm -hmm. fact, I mean that's one of my one of the first books I my parents gave me as a child was actually Chinese, and I absolutely loved it. Yeah. And I flipped through that thing so many times, the pages worn out, and I I liked it because you know also it it's always four. In, you know, in sequence of four characters. Right. So there's something about it that also rhymes. And I think that's actually quite important because Chinese literacy is also very strongly rooted in poetics and being able mm. to write verse and parallel and it's very observant of parallelisms and things like that. And I also like Chinese because I think it does kind of, you ever get the feeling when you're talking to Chinese that they're always like pontificating, like mm -hmm. sharing life's wisdom with you. And I think Chinese actually encourages that because there's always like a punchline. Or what's right. really, a, well, what's actually a punchline is really a moral message that's embedded exactly. in there. You know, like in English is different. Like I use this as an example in the book, walk in a park, right? I mean, that's yeah. that just means something really easy. I mean, that has no, that has that's no a mere deeper idiom, meaning. Though. Yeah, it's an idiom, but, you know, Chinese works the same way, but it's very kind of like, you know, it's, it's very sharp and it's kind of moral critique. And, so yeah, you, and they all they often have a moral object lesson in them. That's absolutely that's, I, right. either a moral lesson or an insult, which you know could basically be the same <laughs> thing. No, but very insult. I mean, you can. I cannot think of another language that has more colorful inventory of insults. Yeah, well, I mean, Shakespearean English is pretty darn good. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all my I, I know I've told this story before probably on this podcast, but I was given two Chengyu dictionaries at various points in my life by my parents. One of them was organized by Pinyin alphabetically. And so all the idioms that I can I have to hand are always like they start with like I wu ji wu or I wu shi shou or, or they're organized by stroke order. So I know like you know, I love that's as far as I got and then I gave that's actually pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, I use the same ones over and over again. I, I'm, I, I'm reminded of this Edith Wharton short story called Zingu, uh, with this one character in in there. She's kind of this not particularly learned woman who's uh, taking part in this uh, a book club, basically this ladies' book club, and um, she has this um, little booklet called Appropriate Allusions for All Occasions, and she keeps it like you know, next to her thigh and it gives her great comfort. And she's looking for an opportunity to use the one that she remembers, which is, canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook? <laughs> <laughs> that, that was hysterical. But uh, Edith Wharton is actually really, really funny as a writer. Not my recommendation for this week. Okay. Anyway, to <laughs> get back to the topic. Um, there is also, I think, uh, a, a great question. Uh, one of the big ones for me, uh, the question of, you know, does the relative durability of the Chinese writing system over time uh, and, you know, and there's no arguing. It's been very durable over time. Would, did that contribute, do you think, to the idea of, of political unity? I mean, Western Europe obviously had Latin and it endured, albeit with some changes for many centuries, uh, even after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. But China it didn't it didn't have the codification of written vernaculars right like like you had in i mean like you know sure you can write cantonese in a cantonese vernacular now but for the very longest time 
there was a standard written language, irrespective of the spoken vernaculars. Uh, so you had a lot of divergence in the toplects of the different, you know, Sinaitic languages, but you still had this written Chinese. Uh, I wonder whether the, the mostly non-phonetic nature of the writing system proved ultimately to be an advantage. In other words, the, the script wouldn't change irrespective of how you pronounced the word. And so did it contribute to the idea of China as naturally or properly being a single political entity, even after the the you know, northern and southern dynasties, even after the the you know, Liao and the Jin and the, the Yuan? Why did the idea of China persist? Does it have something to do with the immutability of the written language? I would say most certainly yes, because you have to think about that's also yeah. when Chinese was first standardized. Emperor Qing, who also built the Great Wall. So, and even before him, one has to remember, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of philosophical weight behind the Chinese written language. And writing traditionally is really equated with authority, right? That is why when the emperor has a certain character in his name, and if you happen to have that character in your name, you better not use it. You have to change it as long as he's in rank. So, it's, you know, writing is very much kind of like a talismatic kind of symbol of power. And to be in control or to be able to issue, you know, that writing in any form is considered a very serious act. I mean, that's why you have, you know, you have like Chinese seances, you know, fortune tellers who like, you know, channel spirits so they can write out characters. I mean, and that's mm. supposed to be taken as a kind of, you know, like tele having talismanic power. So whether you're talking about, and these are kind of more heterodox usage of Chinese character, of Chinese writing. So there's always kind of official and a, this official realm of sanctifying, authorizing, and systematizing the written language. But there's also the popular usage, as you mentioned, not only for dialects, but also for, you know, other purposes, like, you know, typing. The typings were actually the first ones who used vernacular language and huh. simplified character as kind of their official language. You know, they also issued their own currency. But, you know, a lot of our simplified characters now a big part of it is also taken from the precedents that were used by the Taipings. So there's several, there's a, there's several of these kind of very unusual sources for simplified scripts. So again, you know, when we talk about simplified character, first of all, we think, oh right, that and Pinyin, that was Mao's two, you know, his twin accomplishments. Not true, because simplified characters were first proposed under the nationalist government already as early as 1909. And when they proposed it, they were not inventing it, they were also taken from popular usage. Because the so the idea of simplification is really like this is to get closer to the people's habits of using the written language. So it's kind of part of this whole May 4th era of basically desanctifying some ways authority and to redistribute, to give the power of language to the people. This idea that the Taipings were responsible for it, I mean, it, I'm kicking myself now because I spent my 50th birthday in the Bodleian Library in their Seneca and Seneca collections. Uh, I, I got oh, the, and, and they have a ton of typing documents. I held them in my hands and I did not think to look for simplified characters. Next time, maybe on my 100th birthday, I'll, I'll be invited back. <laughs> well, I know I feel we have to work that into your, your podcast, you know, on, on language. We have to figure out yeah, how to give you if you're out there, librarian, invite me back. I'll fly out to Oxford. Just to <laughs> check this out. I, do you know if anyone's written about this before? I mean, I'd love to, to read something about it. Yeah, there's some uh, in Chinese mostly. Yeah, no, that's fine. I, yeah, I I'll, send, I'll send you a couple of short articles on this. Yeah. Oh, uh, that would be amazing. That's, that's I, something I completely did not know. It is very mind blowing and just kind of, you know, Chinese character is kind of like, does it come from above or does it come from below? It's definitely grassroots, but almost, almost like totemic. It also has this kind of strange mythical, you know, realm in which is kind of talked about and discussed, you know, in conjunction with the book of change and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's, so when you say, is it equated, you know, something about Chinese that ensures a unity, it is certainly the backbone of the Chinese culture. And that is why as a subject, the book is that in the 20th century, there was no way they were going to let it go. And you know what? The fact that China went through the 20th century without actually having to sacrifice their language when it had every reason, when they felt every pressure to do so, strengthens that resolve all the more. That Chinese character will be here and is here to stay. Jing Zhu, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me about this book and to share some of your thoughts about 
the Chinese language and how it shapes thinking and how it shapes ideas about ethnicity and, and, and state and, and all that. I really look forward to having you back on again before too long. Uh, I think there's a, a million different topics that we could we could explore on this show together. Most certainly. Yeah, that'd be great. Let's move on now to recommendations. First, a very quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. And if you like the work that we're doing with Seneca or with any of the other many shows in the Seneca network, the best thing you can do to support the work that we do is to subscribe to our wonderful China Access newsletter. Your subscription makes all that we do here possible. I know you hear me say this on the show every week, but really, if you're a listener and you're not subscribing, please do. You'll find it so immensely worthwhile. All right. On to recommendations. Jing, what you got for me? I got a film for you, and it may not be surprising given how popular it is. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Have you seen it? I have not seen it yet. Not yet. I'm, I'm, I've been saving up. I've I'm, I'm been trying to find a time to watch it with my wife. Well, you know, I, I watched it because uh, a student of mine gave me a reading list to educate me on metaverse because she realized how little uh. I know about it. But what I really like <laughs> about it is, first of all, it's, it's, it's a great lens through which to see where the technological decoupling between China and the U.S. might come in in terms of culture. And the perspective, mm. how what kind of use do they see that they can put technology to? So that's a very important difference. The second, which is actually I've already seen in you know that that Chinese sci-fi film, Wandering Earth, is how differently heroism, individual heroism, is articulated in you know in, in China and and in the U.S., where U.S. is very much kind of a Christian theological you know blueprint, you know, boilerplate of the single hero who needs to redeem himself, the fallen, you know, like right. working himself up to, you know, fulfilling or becoming whole again. And in Chinese, like Wandering Earth as well, both Wandering Earth and Everything Everywhere at Once deal with generations of heroes. You know, in Wandering hmm. Earth is a grandfather, son, and grandson. And in this one is grandfather, daughter, and granddaughter. And you have a husband thrown in there too. So it's almost like, you know, that is just three short of a Confucian, you know, five bonds kind of, you know, articulation. <laughs> and I just find that so fascinating because this really is kind of the, you know, the, the easy dichotomy used individualism versus collective. It's also more than that. It's individualism for sure, but kind of collective kind of cohesiveness is also articulating the family structure. So I find it for those two reasons, very interesting film. And I'll be sure to watch it for a second or third time because it's also complicated. The, the great recommendation. And yeah, I'm kicking myself for having, not having seen this yet because so many people have told me that it, it's a transformative movie going experience, that it's just truly a great film. Uh, I hope I haven't set my expectations too high, but um, I don't think I've ever been disappointed uh, seeing anything that uh, Michelle Yeun and I gotta tell you and this movie will not disappoint just because it is also outrageous I mean I burst out laughing so many times that I was nearly crying it's just outrageous <laughs> I won't tell you what it is but if you can imagine all the Hong Kong films you've seen where it's just like stalling soccer that kind of thing I mean just yeah. it, it has outrageous moments like that <laughs> okay great um, my recommendations for this week, I've got two of them, one sort of uh, bookish and scholarly, the other very pop culture, but the, the bookish scholarly one, I was in a bookstore. I took my daughter to to university for her orientation, and she loves bookstores. We were wandering around in a used bookstore on State Street and found I found a copy of Mark Elvin's The Pattern of the Chinese Past, which my, mine had fallen apart. I mean, the spine was broken and I had like, you know, it was in four pieces. So I bought myself a new copy and that was the only book I had with me. So during downtime, I, I, I reread the first two chapters and I was just reminded how wonderful it is. This is the book where he lays out this theory about the high level equilibrium trap, which connects to what you were talking about, the Needham question, because this is sort of his answer to the Needham question that basically in Song China, you know, it got to this level where, there wasn't any more need for for innovation. It was doing a pretty fine fine job, but there's there it's it's a really thinky, very intensely you know cerebral his, history text. It's full of big ideas. Elvin is brilliant. Uh, I love this book. So, the pattern of the Chinese past. I got it for like like eight bucks. It was great. Also, the new Porcupine Tree album closure <laughs> slash continuation which is just a great album. Um, they've been hi on hiatus 
for like a decade. I mean, their last record was like 2012 or 2013. And, um, you know, I've been waiting for this for a long time. They've been uh, releasing singles from it and dribs and drabs, but to listen to the whole thing through, oh, wow, it's just, it's a great record. It's up there with their, you know, canonical great records. And I'm going to see them in DC on tour in September. So I'm really glad. I said, you know, Porcupine Tree, I think one of the greatest progressive rock bands ever, and uh, and they've not disappointed. All right. Thank you. My God, that was so much fun. That was so great, Kaiser. It was so fun talking with you. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll have you back again really soon. Yeah, that'd be great. Love to. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News and be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.